everyone, and welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. It's good to be with you this morning. A few weeks ago, Matt Leahy kicked us off with the book of Galatians, uh, the book that the interns and the church planners here at Calvary are preaching through. And last week we heard from David um, in the next sequence of Galatians 1, 6 to 10, that there is only one gospel. And this week I'll be speaking, it was just, as we just heard from Galatians 1, 11 to 24. So my question for you right off the bat is this, how can you know that the gospel is true? How can you know that the gospel is true? What makes it different from every other belief system, worldview, and religion out there? And related to that, how has the gospel impacted you personally? Maybe you're here and it, and it, it hasn't really affected you. You might not know what the gospel is, and that's fine. I'm about to get into explaining that real soon. But others of you, you might say, the gospel of Jesus Christ changed my life. Not only in what I believe, but how I live. And as we work through this passage together, we're going to try to answer those couple questions. So if you're taking notes, the main theme of this passage, my sermon in a sentence, if you will, is the gospel has the power to transform because it is from God. The gospel has the power to transform because it is from God. So there's two main points in there. The gospel's from God and the gospel transforms. And to understand the truth of this, we're going to shortly take a look at the life of Paul. And through that story, we'll see not only the truth of the gospel, that it is from God, but its power to change people's hearts. Now, this section of Galatians is a little bit more biographical than the rest, Paul gives us his testimony to essentially prove the point that he's making. So we'll spend time looking at Paul and his story, what that means, and then through that we'll see what this passage means for us and how we can apply it to our lives. So, Calvary, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And as we just heard read out for us, it takes a heart of stone and gives it a heart of flesh that beats, that is alive. It is God loving us while we were still sinners, while we rebelled against him, while we even hated him. If you, if you want to get a picture of who we are as humans, it is the picture of the crowds before Pontius Pilate, Pilate yelling, crucify him, crucify him. It's the picture of the Roman soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross, mocking him all the while. Friends, that was Paul, and that is us too. It's just like that hymn, how deep the Father's love for us says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So if we're going to understand the power of the gospel, as Paul describes it here, let's first be clear on what the gospel is. Firstly, our sin has separated us from God. Because God is perfect, just, loving, and holy, and we are none of those things. We are criminals in the eyes of God. And every crime has its sentence. And the sentence for our sin, for my sin, is death and eternal separation from God. And we have no way of saving ourselves from it. That is why Jesus came. To live the life we could never live. To bear the punishment of death we could never endure. Yet while Jesus is being nailed to the cross to pay the price for our sin... We are the ones in the crowd mocking, sneering, and scoffing at him, saying, aren't you the Messiah? 
then save yourself. We are no better than them because we have all sinned. But in the midst of our scorn, what is Jesus doing? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Church, Jesus died for us even as we rejected him. And by his death, the price of our sin, the punishment we deserve was paid in full. When we only believe on Jesus who died and rose again, declaring his victory over death and sin. And if you want a biblical basis for that definition, just turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the same truth, the same Jesus that appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, and it's the same Jesus that invites us into his presence today. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then you know that once upon a time, you were no better, I was no better than those Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross who flogged and lashed him, who mocked and sneered at him. Yet Christ has changed us from an enemy, enemy into a friend. And this is not something we can take credit for. Rather, this is the radical change that could only be brought about by God. And it's the same radical change that happened in Paul's life. It demonstrates for us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that's shown to us in the scriptures, the one that we preach today, is true and it has the power to transform because it is from God. So take a look at verses 11 to 17 in our passage. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul's giving his defense here as to why the gospel that he's preaching is from God, why it's true. Now he says that he wasn't taught this. As Leon Morris puts it, he didn't inherit it from his father, and he didn't learn it from a teacher, both of which would have been the common ways of receiving knowledge in that time. Rather, he's saying that his understanding of the gospel came about in a rather peculiar way. How could it be man's gospel, after all, if it wasn't taught by a man? Rather, it is God's gospel because it came about through a revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And one of the evidences that this is true is because it transformed Paul's life. And it is the power to transform our lives as well. So let's take a brief look into Paul's life and, and see just how much his encounter with Jesus altered everything. Turn with me to Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. The context here is one of the first deacons of the early church, Stephen, had been dragged before a council of Jewish leaders, falsely accused of blasphemy. And verses 54 to 60 describe what happened after he had given his defense. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This was Paul before he encountered Jesus, rounding up and organizing the execution of Christians. Back then, he was known as Saul. And as Philippians 3, 5 to 6 tells us, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was zealous for the law and kept it almost perfectly. He saw his persecution of the church as doing a service to God. As Thomas Schreiner says, Paul would have thought of himself as a modern-day version of Phineas or the prophet Elijah. Just to give you a glimpse of that comparison, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 18, we have this scene where Elijah and the prophets of Baal build separate altars to, to essentially prove whose God is real. Yahweh, the God of Israel, or Baal, a, a pagan deity. And after many attempts, the prophets of Baal cannot seem to get their God to rain down fire from heaven to set alight their offering on their altar. So then Elijah calls on his God, and immediately his altar is engulfed with fire from heaven, proving that Yahweh was the true God, and Baal was just a fake. And then verses 39 to 40 describe what happens after. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So when the prophets of the pagan god Baal are proven wrong, Elijah takes them, slaughters them to prevent them from being further deceived by the people. Or from the people being further deceived by them, rather. So it's important to know this because it gives us a clue of the Apostle Paul's identity before Christ he would have thought of himself as a contemporary version of Elijah. Just instead of the prophets of Baal, he was putting to death Christians in order to prevent his fellow Jews from being further deceived in a similar way. So he was so passionate about the traditions of his ancestors, 
and he was well advanced beyond anyone else his age. You know, if he lived today, he would have been that straight A student in your high school who got 100 on every test and won all the big scholarships to every major university. He was top of the class, head and shoulders above the rest, a Pharisee of Pharisees. So when Jesus came along, seemingly doing away with all these traditions that Paul so passionately defended, it infuriated him. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, which is not allowed according to the Pharisees. His disciples ate with unwashed hands. He even declared all foods clean, meaning no more dietary restrictions, all of which flew directly in the face of everything Paul stood for. As David De Silva notes, Jesus provocatively claims to have authority to forgive people their sins. He has table fellowship with Jews who exhibit little or no concern with purity regulations. He directly opposes the traditions of the elders, which the Pharisees revere as an essential part of covenant observance. And he presumed to correct Moses of whether or not divorce was permissible. So from the point of view of Paul and the Pharisees, Jesus was at odds with the Torah itself. But perhaps the most offensive of all was the Christian belief that Jesus, who was nailed to a cross and died a humiliating death, was God's Messiah. To Paul, the Messiah was meant to be the great redeemer of Israel, who would rescue them from Roman occupation and once again restore Israel to its former glory. But as Ronald Fung notes, a crucified Messiah was an insult to national political messianic hopes. It was also incomprehensible absurdity. After all, the law says, cursed is any man who is hung on a tree, as Jesus was. So in order to purge Israel of its evil, of its turning away from God, of its being deceived by this Jesus guy and his followers, Paul thought Israel must be purged of its Christians. And this is exactly what he's doing in Acts with the execution of Stephen. He's the one heading it up, organizing it. His mission is to wipe out the church. Well, today, we know Paul as the writer of most of the books of the New Testament, and perhaps the man who has been the most influential in the worldwide spread of Christianity. So what happened? What caused him to change his mind? to see that he was wrong, for this radical transformation to happen. What changed for him? What caused people to even say about him, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy? It's important to take notice of the fact that, just like Paul, we can be extremely zealous for things as well. But as Tom Schreiner says, we can also be zealously wrong. Now for Paul, what caused him to see the error of his ways was quite the dramatic event, and it goes to prove the main point that the gospel has the power to transform because it is from God. So I'm going to read out a passage in Acts chapter 9 that describes what took place in Paul's life. If you want to turn there, how God intervened to change him from a persecutor of the church to one of its most ardent proponents. So let's take a look at Acts 9. It's a bit of a lengthy section from verse 1 all the way down to verse 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Perhaps for some of you, that's a story you've heard many times before. And perhaps for others, this was your first. But it goes to show that Christ can take even the most rebellious of hearts. The ones who are so set against him and change them into living, beating hearts that can serve and worship and enjoy God. So what changed for Paul, really? He encountered Jesus and believed. And it should be an encouragement to all of us as well that those that we spend much time in prayer over, friends, family, people in our community, are never beyond the grace of God. And it encourages me, and I think it should, all of us, even as we seek to plant churches and desire to see people connecting with Jesus, that though this is a hard place where Growth is slow, tedious, and sometimes non-existent. It should give us hope that if God could save somebody like Paul, actually, if 
if God could save people like us, like me, then nobody's beyond hope. So let's keep reading our passage in Galatians. Take a look at verses 18 to 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now remember my main point that the gospel has the power to transform because it is from God. So if it's from God, it transforms. If it's not from God, then it does nothing. It doesn't matter. And this is part of Paul's argument here. He's trying to give the evidence for the fact that the gospel that he is preaching is from God. He didn't take time learning it from somebody else. He couldn't have made it up since, as commentators note, before his conversion, he didn't really even know what it was. He's saying that he first understood the gospel because Jesus appeared to him on the road at Damascus. And then almost immediately after this experience, he goes off into Arabia and then back to Damascus. He doesn't run back to Jerusalem to be instructed by the 12 apostles. In fact, it's only after three years that he finally makes his way back there and stays with Peter for two weeks. By the way, if it says Cephas in your translation, that's just the Aramaic version of Peter's name. So Paul comes back and stays with Peter for two weeks. But as Phil Reichen notes, even that was just to meet the guy. It certainly wasn't enough time for Paul to study under him. It was simply a sort of friendly hello to say, you know, hey, I'm not trying to kill you anymore. I'm on your team now. Let's be friends. He even mentions that the churches in Judea would not even be able to recognize him in person. In fact, he's so dead set on proving this, that this is true, that in verse 20 where Paul says, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. As Riken says, this would have been the kind of oath someone would swear in a court of law to declare that they are telling the truth. Before God, I do not lie. And the reason that Paul is saying all this stuff and giving a laundry list of his itinerary is to say explicitly that, hey guys, the gospel that I preach was given to me in no other way than through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And because it was given to me by Jesus Christ, therefore it is from God, therefore it is true. And if you want more proof than that, just take a look at my life. I used to want to destroy the followers of Jesus, but now I preach his gospel. That's what Paul is saying. And it's one of the ways that we can know that the gospel that's presented to us in scripture is true, and therefore it can transform us as well. So I want to talk about this transformation, right, for us. What, what does that look like? And you might say, well, sure, Paul had an incredible transformation, obviously, but so have many others, and not all of them were Christian. Some Muslims, Hindus, atheists who have stories of turning their lives around in a complete 180. And yeah, you're right, that's true. But this is where our understanding of the gospel becomes crucial. Never equate the supernatural work of God on the inward heart of a sinner 
to our measly ability to modify our behavior, even drastically, even if we've done a complete 180-degree turn, pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, got rid of our bad habits, haven't missed a Sunday morning in 20 years. That's still not the gospel. Like David told us last week when he read from Greg Gilbert's book, the true gospel is because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. On the other hand, if we can't confidently say that one thing, Christ died in my place, but instead we just give God our list of accomplishments. If I just give God my list of accomplishments and say, you know, I became a better person, I ditched those old bad habits and developed good ones. Given lots of money to the church, I've thought positive thoughts. I paid it forward and did random acts of kindness. I was a good pastor. I've even led many souls to Christ. Look at my resume, God. Look at all my good deeds. What's God going to say to that? Because in Matthew chapter 7, it looks like there's going to be a lot of people saying stuff like that. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but those are words I never want to hear. I never want to come before God one day and say, I was a good pastor. I planted a church. It grew. People got saved. There was revival in Newfoundland and Labrador. I never want to say that and hear those words in response. Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know about you, but I've never casted out a demon from someone before or prophesied. Yet Jesus seems to say that you can do even that and still not know him at all. So I don't have to say all that stuff. All I have to say is one thing. Christ died in my place. Christ died in my place. And if you trust in that, then Christ will transform your life. You don't have to do it in your own strength. Christ will give you his strength. Notice I said transform. Not make your life easier. Not make all your problems go away. Not give you more success and health and wealth. Not even make your suffering stop. At least not in this life. Chances are life will get harder. As, as we heard Jeff pray about this morning. That's real. But the difference is, Christ will be with you. Who will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will make you more like himself. And as Martin Luther once said, I'd rather have hell with Christ than heaven without him. Schreiner states that Paul's ministry was powerful because the transforming grace of God was evident in his life. 
not the transforming discipline of man, but the grace of God. So the question that becomes, is this grace evident in how we live our lives? Has it changed us? Does it continue to change us? Is the grace of God evident in our lives? And if I can be honest for a second, sometimes I feel like not so much. At least not as much as I feel it ought to be. 99 times out of 100, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'd much rather go back to bed than spend time communing with my Father in heaven. So often the things of the world look so much more appealing than Christ. And I know, I know intellectually that the temptation from the devil is a lie. I know the pleasure he offers never lasts or satisfies. I know he does nothing but overpromise and underdeliver every single time. Yet somehow I find it easier to trust the devil than trust the Savior who has bought me with his blood. And yet, because of the overwhelming grace of God, like the prodigal son returning home, every single time I come back to him, most times with the same sin. Here I am again, God, confessing the same thing to you. Like that prodigal son returning home, the arms of the father are always open, ready to receive me in a warm embrace. Because every time I sin, because I believe that Christ died in my place, every time I sin, Christ says, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that too. I paid for your works of the flesh. I paid for your idolatry, your jealousy, your sexual immorality, your strife, your fits of anger. I paid for all of that. So come home. Come home, for you are my child. You see, if I wasn't a Christian, if I trusted in anything or anybody else other than in Christ, I'd be thinking about all the bad deeds that I just have to bear down and make up now through more good deeds. You know, I've fallen out of favor with God again. How can I work myself back? You know, it's going to take some time, but hopefully I'll get there by the skin of my teeth. But with Christ, he's never far off. He just says, I paid for that already. You don't need to work your way back to me. You never could if you tried anyways. But I'm here with you nonetheless. That's the difference with Christ. Philip Ryken has this great quote in his commentary on Galatians. He says this, Not surprisingly, the religions that human beings invent always end up glorifying, well, human beings. There's some law to keep, some teaching to follow, some ritual to perform, some penance to endure, or some state of consciousness to achieve that will bring salvation. One or another, we can climb up to heaven and reach God. Christianity is different. What distinguishes it from other world religions is that it actually comes from God. The one true gospel is not man-made, which is why it gives all the glory to God. 
The good news of the cross and the empty tomb could come only from God because it is about what God has done to save us through Jesus Christ. It does not teach that we can reach up to heaven. It teaches that God has come down to earth. In Christ, God has entered human history and the human heart. That's the truth right there. Trust in it. It's a promise that is not man-made, but from God. As Leon Morris says, the problem with the gospel that Paul preached is that it does not conform to what human thinking holds a gospel ought to be. Nothing human could account for the great change that had taken place in him. It almost doesn't even make sense in a human way. I mean, Paul, by his own admission, had kept the law pretty well perfectly. How could he, out of all people, have been so far from God that whole time? But as he says in 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the gospel has the power to transform because it is from God. People were deceiving the Galatian Christians into buying into a man-made gospel. You got to do this first. You got to keep the law. You need to be circumcised first. They were adding to the message. In our day, it may not be those specific things, but as David told us last week, there are many false gospels out there. But the one that is from God, the one that is true, is the one that really transforms, the one that changes our hearts. So if you don't know Christ, don't be deceived into thinking you're a good enough person. Nobody is. He can never work your way to God. But instead, Christ came down to meet us where we are. That while we were still sinners, he died for us and he loves us. And if you do know Christ, then be encouraged and reminded That even though we continue to struggle with sin, Jesus always has his arms wide open. So when you fall into the same sin, you always sin. Christ paid for that. When you can't seem to control your anger, Christ paid for that. When your marriage is struggling, Christ paid for that. When you're addicted to substances or porn, Christ paid for that. When you never pray or read your Bible, Christ paid for that. And when you struggle with being self-righteous, Christ paid for that too. And when we truly, really grasp the depth, the power of this gospel, it won't give us a license to sin. It will change us that we might desire to be holy, not in order to earn Christ's love, but because we already are loved. In his book, Deeper, Dane Orland writes this. As you despair of yourself, agonizing over the desolation wrought by your failures, your weaknesses, your inadequacies, let that despair take you way down deep into honesty with yourself. For there you will find a friend, the living Lord Jesus himself, who will startle and surprise you with his gentle goodness as you leave self 
behind in repentance and bank on him afresh in faith. So church, as we conclude here, now knowing that the gospel transforms, that it is from God, that it is true, and that it means that the good news, that Christ died in our place, let me leave you with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done and what he is now doing for me. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you now in this place and thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you died, Lord, in our place. Thank you, God, that we don't have to deal with the working our way back to you. We never could if we tried. Thank you for showing us, as you did through the life of Paul today, that your gospel transforms, and it is true, and it comes from you. And so I pray for all of us today, God, that if anyone here does not know Christ, that they would see the warmth of the embrace that you will offer them, of the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace and the friendship that you offer them. And I pray, God, for, for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ here, that we would be encouraged and reminded that you are never far off, that you are never sneering or looking down in contempt at us, but every time we sin, Lord, you paid for all of it, past, present, and future, and you long for us to run back to you every single time. So may we rest in that promise, may we rest in your grace that is greater than all of our sin. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.